Welcome back. In today's episode, we're going to talk about President Biden's approval ratings and how they've changed drastically in his 10 months in office. We'll take a look at how he got to where he is and how those numbers impact his prospects for the midterms next year and for 2024. We'll be taking a look at those stories and more today, November 26th, 2021. From Anchor by Spotify, this is The Sean S. Show, a podcast about the interesting and ever-changing world of American politics, all from the perspective of a 15-year-old. With me, your host, Ishan. Welcome back to The Sean S. Show, and a happy Thanksgiving to you guys. A day late, I'll say, but happy Thanksgiving. I hope all of you got to eat well and spend time with family and friends. I got to. But all of that came after several weeks of crazy for me, both with school and things outside of school as well. So as this show's top producer, I kind of made the executive decision to just halt new episodes until I could get things together, you know, a more calm schedule, a more constant schedule, not one that's changing every other moment. (laughs) I love making this show. But to have to make an episode one week and then skip the next and then come the week after just wasn't making sense to me. I could either say I had technical difficulties every other week or just switch to a bi-weekly episode, but I never liked that idea. American politics is something that is always changing and can't just be put under the rug to check on every few weeks. So I made a very conscious decision to just halt production until I could find the time to make new regular episodes. Although I can't promise that I can consistently make new episodes every week, I can promise you that I'm no longer as busy as I have been this past month. So you can look forward to new and hopefully more regular episodes for this show. (laughs) Now, like I said, American politics is one of those things that is always changing. There's not a constant for politics. I will admit, though, the past few weeks in politics have, generally speaking, been a little more bland than it usually is. But an interesting thing that I, many, that I think many people have noticed is President Biden's approval ratings. It's something I've covered in the first two episodes of this season, but I haven't been able to talk about as in-depth as I wanted to. To put it simply, President Biden's approval ratings are not looking good. In a recent Washington Post-ABC News poll, it was reported that Biden was approved by 40% of American voters. That's been the trend for this president since August, after the Afghanistan withdrawal. It's been even worse for his number two. According to a USA Today Suffolk poll, Vice President Kamala Harris is only approved by just 28% of Americans. Look, this show is not biased. I never have, never ever have had that intention, but even I must say, barring that bias, that these numbers are less than ideal for any politician. For some context, on the last day of the previous administration, 
President Trump hit a low point of 38.6%. In Trump world, this was acceptable. He was not a figure that united the country. Trump was a politician that, for the most part, worked for his own base. He knew that. His supporters knew that. Everyone in the country knew that. But there's a, and that's the reason his approval ratings across the country were so poor within, but were poor amongst the people, but within his party were so high, ninety five percent, ninety six percent. The Republican Party loved him, not necessarily the entire country. With President Biden, however, it's a whole other story. So, when President Biden was a candidate. He ran on a t- on the ticket of being a uniter and lowering the temperature in Washington. But instead, what we've been seeing for the past 10 or so months is pretty much the opposite of that. I mean, look at D.C. Nothing about American politics is calm. Boring, yes, but it's not calm by any means. Constant division of political divisiveness from political actors in D.C. from both parties has prompted some of the difficulties that the president's been facing. I think that's at least some of the thing that's some of the things to blame for Biden's unpopularity amongst the public right now. But for Biden, his unpopularity can be called surprising. I mean, It was after the Afghanistan withdrawal that President Biden's numbers plummeted. When I say plummeted, I mean plummet. Biden had a consistent positive approval rating through the first half of August. So from January 20th to the first half of August, they were consistently positive. That's also known as the president's honeymoon period. It's something I've covered before, but generally it's the period after your inauguration that you have um, a positive approval rating. Biden stayed popular for the most part. That COVID rescue package early early into into his term, greater involvement on the world stage, a greater focus on political divisions, and and healing those people really liked that about our president about at the time i kind of recall myself thinking about the various ways that president biden's favorability could drop not because i may have wanted it but just because of how unusual plus 5 approval plus 8 plus 10 approval was for a political was for somebody in the political world in this age we didn't get to see those kinds of numbers a whole lot under the few remaining years uh, under the final years of the Obama administration and pretty much the entire Trump administration. The reason I think this was working for President Biden initially was that his administration was following a very strict formula, if you will. This formula was essentially a do no harm formula. Deliver on what you promise and hold the party intact. When you hear me say that, I'm sure you're kind of like kind of doubting my political knowledge, but hear me out. The do no harm principle is a term that, okay, I just coined like right now, but it's a concept that once existed, but has fizzled in the past few years. Essentially, this do no harm concept is to do everything with the public mandate, which means do what you promise to do for the public. Deliver on the things that the public elected you to do. 
for the president, this was a vast, there was a vast chest of policies that he could implement, that he promised to deliver on upon his election. The thing was that a lot of Biden's policies that he was pretty much elected for were very COVID-based. Think about it. When President Biden took office, for obvious reasons, most of his policy priorities were about the COVID-19 pandemic, economically, health-wise, globally, and internally. You know, a lot of it was just about COVID. So when Biden promised to deliver on his policies, he promised to deliver primarily on COVID policies that really appealed to his base, that elected him. Biden didn't really need to talk about, you know, his other policy stances. At that point during the election, COVID was all that mattered. We were seeing so many cases. We were seeing so many hospitalizations. In fact, President Trump in the last month of the election got COVID. Like that's how much COVID had engulfed the political news cycle. So for both candidates, I think COVID had become the base of their rhetoric, of their policies. Maybe not as much from both sides, but it was still a big factor. Arguably, that's still the case right now. But I'd say that back then, it was much bigger. So for Biden, he was delivering on exactly what he promised to do so initially. At the same time, his party was also backing him. The reason this was a big deal was because of the skepticism of progressive liberals' reservations about Biden policies, um, about them potentially not being progressive enough. But in Congress, when people like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were applauding President Biden for his work, it it was a reassuring sign that Biden was able to hold his party together. That's a really important thing, um, especially again in this day of age, in this day and age, and specifically with the Democratic Party. I think after the 2016 Democratic Party, there were real fractures within um, within the group between the progressive liberals and the moderates. Hillary Clinton, of course, was spearheading the moderate movement. Bernie Sanders was the one who took on the helm of the progressive movement. And we saw something similar in the 2020 Democratic primary, the division between um, progressives and moderates. But this time, it had been a lot more divided, but then coalesced into a Biden versus Sanders situation. So when we saw the liberal progress, liberals and progressives come together to support Biden, I think it must have been a very reassuring sign for his administration that, yes, we do have the support from most of our party. Because at that time, those people um, are specifically, you know, the further left of the Democratic Party were what most people um, in the moderate world were worried about. Now, there's another thing that the Republican Party was doing that I felt didn't boost Biden's numbers, but did hurt um, the Republican Party's numbers. That was their disagreement over Donald Trump's place in their party. This was expected after Trump left. Um, Even before the election, many pundits everywhere across the political spectrum did allude to this question that in the event that Donald Trump lost the election, what would happen to his place in his party? But what would happen to the Republican Party as a whole? For the first half of the year, 
Republicans were very confused about this. It was very evident when we saw them up in up on the Hill um, and in D.C. in general. While it wasn't there wasn't a big opposition, people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who were big Trump opponents from within the Republican Party, they were managing to command at least some of the national uh, some of the national attention that both parties were seeking. You can check out my episode from the last season about anti-Trumpism in the GOP for some more knowledge on this topic. But in a nutshell, there was one there was opposition to Trump both privately and publicly within the Republican Party. It was this tension within the party that I feel kept it from focusing on its policy priorities. People can refute me on this if they'd like, but the fact of the matter is that Republicans had kind of lost sense of what their priorities were under the first few months of the Biden administration. It could have very well been because nobody in the party thought that Trump was going to lose or that he was maybe going to lose that spot as leader or that they were going to lose control, at least of the Senate. Or or maybe even lose those two Georgia seats, of course, costing them Senate. I don't know. But what it was clear was that many Republicans were questioning Donald Trump's spot in the Republican Party, not asking if he was in the party, but just how big was his influence and how big ideally should it be? What was more evident, though, was the GOP leadership, especially in the House, trying to cement Trumpism in the GOP. One of the biggest moves that I saw this year was Liz Cheney's removal from her number three spot in the House GOP conference. There were many moves from the Republican Party to cement Trumpism. And I feel like it took a little while for them to get to that point because after um, Biden came into power, I think the attitude of a lot of Washington was kind of like, let's just move on. Let's let's just move on. But the Republican Party, the faction that really went for Trump was did prove itself to be stronger um, in, in taking control of the of the political discussion. So it took a little while for that to formulate that stuff combined with Biden's own political successes. Again, like that covid relief package come, that comes to mind, helped spearhead his popularity amongst the country. It allowed him to look to look at more policy-oriented matters as well as more folk and see more focused two things people were expecting when he was a candidate and wanted him to be when he was president elect but then Afghan- the afghanistan afghanistan withdrawal really screwed things up for biden part of that was not his fault just the timing and the terms of the withdrawal were not his fault he inherited a deal And these two major provisions were a part of that deal. What he messed up with was the botched response to the Taliban's quick takeover of Kabul. His mishandling of key moments in this withdrawal were what really pitted the withdrawal to be labeled as a botched withdrawal. It could have gone smoother. And it could have got, it could have um, just happened without the large safety crisis and power vacuum that's been created yet again in this region of the world. Other than Afghanistan, the Afghanistan withdrawal, rising inflation has been a big deal. I can't say people didn't predict this because um, there were people that 
last year did say that inflation was going to become a big deal. But for many people, the inflation that we're seeing right now is problematic. And the blame can be pitted, at least in some part, to this administration again. Again, I I just don't want to get into the monetary policy of Biden's treasury just because that's just going to sound a lot more like an economics lecture. And I know you guys are here for the politics. So let's keep it simple. Um, the inflation we're seeing right now is because of a few things. But the biggest thing to round, to bring it back again is the COVID-19 pandemic. That's driven up prices like crazy, not just here, but around the world. Presidents and prime ministers alike are facing backlash from their people about this sudden rise in consumer costs. Here in the United States, the rhetoric is being framed as people not being able to afford Thanksgiving dinners and gas. Looking at one of these things in an effort to combat one of the issues, the president very recently just opened up, I believe, 50 million barrels of gas reserves to help stabilize gas prices. And in addition to that, the president is trying to work with or challenge oil companies for their alleged price control tactics. And to tie the thing in about the party politics, Democrats are no longer on the same page, whereas the Republicans are. Now, okay, let me explain. Modern Democrats like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin have made it hard for Biden to do just about anything. 50 seat plus VP majority in the Senate creates a very unusual but prevalent power dynamic between these two senators and the rest of their party. Liberals aren't being as big of a problem anymore because for the most part, the president is able to meet their needs and wishes. But with these two senators, Biden just can't seem to win with them. Uh, Democrats in their home, in, in the, even in their home states don't like it a whole lot themselves. I mean, according to a recent poll, only 19% of Arizona Democrats would support Kirsten Cinema in a Democratic primary. So, yes, technically Biden and many other people in the Democratic Party do not approve of what the two our two senator Democrat, Democrat senators are doing. But until Democrats hold the zero seat, it's 50 to 50, majority, Cinema and Nanshan hold the levers to power in D.C. politics. The Republican Party, on the other hand, has for the most part managed to center their priorities and focus on taking down President Biden. Yes, they do have internal disturbances within their ranks of Republicans not interested in adhering to Donald Trump policy, like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Again, they're not going anywhere until next year, at least. But ignoring those people, they're united. The Republicans are united. So I'd say President Biden kind of is kind of facing the inverse of what he was experiencing six months ago. He had a stronger party, relatively weak opposition, policy successes, and resulting approval ratings. Now, he has far, he has a far more divided party, not a lot of successes, policy-wise, a somewhat comparatively stronger opposition, and resulting in that poor approvals. Now, that was a look at what President Biden did or was at and where he is right now and what it took for him to get here. 
After the break, I'm going to look at how this impacts Biden's electoral successes in the future, as well as what the greater Democrat and Republican parties' strategies might be going forward. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this short, short break. So President Biden's approval ratings, we've kind of established, are not doing very well right now. 538's latest political averages, which basically compiles the approval ratings of the president from all kinds of reputable polls and then averages them out, shows that Biden, as of November 24th, is currently approved by 42.9% of Americans while being disapproved by 51.8% of Americans. Now, if I did my math right, that's a minus 8.9% approval rating. That's that's not low, but it's low enough that people in Biden world are probably concerned or panicking. The image of the administration right now is in damage control. I'd say they've been decent in handling some of the bad press, but especially with economic policy, it seems really unstable right now. That's going to be really detrimental when Americans head to the polls in less than a year now for the midterms. The economy is generally one of the most impactful and most important issues to voters for um, when they're talking about the government and how they feel it's been deal- working for them. So when the administration is struggling to deal with major economic problems that are directly impacting the American people, it's got to be concerning to say the least. And... I think this really hurts the president with a wide array of voters, especially with swing voters in the Midwest. I mean, I'm just name dropping the Midwest, but it could be in a lot of places. The only reason I mention the Midwest is because states like Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and to some extent Ohio are are in this region of the country. The Republican Party has been doing somewhat of a good job portraying the president as a weak person who's not been able to help the average American family with average American costs like food, gas, and other household expenditures. These are states that are going to matter a whole lot in November next year, but they're going to be even more important in 2024. Now, if you recall, Pennsylvania was the state that put Biden over the top only after several days of counting votes and that and they were and it was preceded just a couple of days before that by Michigan and Wisconsin that also took a long time to count. These states have historically gotten ridiculously close and have been the kingmakers of national politics in the United States. Like most people, I'm sure residents in these swing states do not know who their governor is. They probably don't know who their representative is or their state legislature members. Some may not know who their senator is, but they do know who the president is, and they also know what party he's from. In the event that you're one of these voters and you're not satisfied with the incumbent president, you're probably going to vote for their opposition. You're not sure what they're going to do, per se, but you do know that they won't do what the incumbent is doing. That may be harming you. Now, look, that was a gross oversimplification of the average suing voter. But I think the Biden team really needs to be weary of something like this because the midterms are a referendum on the party in power. 
And this time, the Democrats have the keys to power in D.C. They control the House, the Senate, and, of course, the presidency. For the Democrats as a whole, I think going forward, they're going to spend a good amount of their time trying to focus on damage control. They want to look good in front of their voters so that so that they can win. Pretty common concept. But with the potential Democratic Party, with potential Democratic Party successes like the multi-trillion dollar Democratic package stalling in Congress, many vulnerable Congress people are aren't able to deliver the good news to their voters. So for people in generally swingy states like Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger from Virginia or even Kirsten Cinema and Mark Kelly from Arizona or Joe Manchin from West Virginia, they don't have much to tell their voters. With the Republicans, on the other hand, they are experiencing something similar to what the Democrats were experiencing during the Trump years. They have a lot more momentum building from their base, and that's rooted in, 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 in their dislike for Joe Biden, um, dissatisfaction for what he's done. Many of the approval rating numbers are showing that amongst the Republican base. Now, Republican leaders are waiting for that same momentum to show up in results at polling booths across, across the country. As long as the president and his party face these hiccups, I don't see a realistic path for them to succeed next year. And with that, I don't know how successful President Biden might be in 2024, especially if Donald Trump runs again. And let's admit, Donald Trump is probably very likely going to be running for president again. Now, the reason I say that Biden might face a little more of a struggle against Trump is because these two went head to head against each other already. But the first time that happened, one was banking on the fact that the incumbent had not done what he should have been doing. That was President Biden at back then. Now, if Donald Trump runs again, it's going to be the first time in a while that two experienced presidents have been on the same ballot. And this time, both candidates have as much baggage to fire against each other. I'm not saying that both candidates are fundamentally flawed or have screwed up the country in some way. What I am saying is that both of these people have made mistakes that each party does not like. And those mistakes have angered the American people. That has happened under both administrations. If Trump runs again, which it he may, Biden's going to know how to deal with him and vice versa. But for the American voter... It's going to be about who helped them more. And so that does it for us here today. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. If you liked my commentary, then go ahead and follow at the Ishan S Show on Instagram and Twitter for show updates and breaking news posts. If you want to hear more political stories, then check out my political news blog at theshanashow.com. Do us a favor and share this episode and all the others with your friends and family. It's the best way for this show to grow and get more people listening to it. Thanks again for all your support, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye!